What's up? Uh, so last week we, uh, I think it was last week that we began looking through uh, the Old Testament, maybe the week before they blend together. Um, the New Testament, actually. We finished the Old Testament last week and we started new. You need the pen. And uh, we considered Matthew's perspective uh, largely uh, as we consider the relationship between worship and all of these other different biblical themes that we see occurring. Um, and one of the biggest things that we talked about was how um, in the Old Testament, the temple is the meeting place between heaven and earth. It's where God's presence uh, dwelt among men. And it was the center of religious life for the Israelite community. And in the New Testament, we see um, in Matthew, we talked how, um, really Matthew and John, we began discussing in John how Jesus is the new temple. He is the new tabernacle, the new temple, the new place, as it were, where God dwells with men. And we considered uh, the beginning of John's Gospel and how he's, in a lot of ways, uh, he's making these allusions to... um, to Exodus, to the tabernacle, how, you know, literally that the Word became flesh and, and tabernacled among us. Um, we often translate it dwelt, but um, the word used there in the Greek is related to uh, one for, you know, a tent. He, he pitched a tent among us and camped out. Um, and um, one of the, the more... Um, interesting things that um, that we came across uh, in my opinion was what Jesus says to Nathaniel in the end of thank you in the end of chapter one where Nathaniel makes this great confession of Jesus as the Christ and he says I tell you the truth you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man and then um, we quoted uh, David Peterson who makes his comment. He says, despite the complexity of this verse, it's allusion. It's an allusion to the dream of Jacob in Genesis 28.12. And uh, is clear and suggests that Jesus is the Son of Man. As a Son of Man, He is the new Bethel, uh, which uh, Hebrew word means house of God. Um, and so the house of God is now Christ. The temple, however, was not only the meeting place of heaven and earth, but it was a place of sacrifice. And so, in Christ, the temple is fulfilled not only in the incarnation, but in the crucifixion of Christ, the sacrifice for sins. And so, we, uh, we closed by stating that we needed to look at John 4, one of the most significant uh, statements, explicit statements on worship in the Bible comes in John 4. Um, John 4, Jesus meets this woman at the well. Uh, She is a Samaritan woman. 
and uh, she, they have this profound conversation where he's revealing all of these things uh, that he knows about her, and she's kind of being shaken to her core that this man truly is from God, and yet she asked a question um, about worship. Verse 19, she says, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers, the Samaritans, worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So she's asking this debate between the Jews and Samaritans. Where is the place that we're supposed to go and worship God? Jesus says, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. And so, Jesus here shifts the conversation from, she's asking about the place of worship, which I don't necessarily think that she was simply, because they weren't talking about worship, and she just kind of throws it in there. Um, I don't know that she was trying to avoid his other questions, but she asks this question about the place of worship, and he says, no, no, we need to talk about the manner of worship. The place of worship is not the question. Where can you worship? There's not a specific locale where you must be in order to rightly worship. He says you must worship God in a certain way. Who is it that God is seeking? I'll ask you that. Jesus says God's seeking what? People who worship Him, true worshipers who worship Him in spirit and in truth. And he's not contrasting here the New Covenant with the Old Covenant, um, saying that the New Covenant is, is spiritual and true, the Old Covenant is um, material and false. I think the point is that a, it's very similar to the point that he makes to Nicodemus in chapter 3, that a person must be born again in order to see the kingdom of God. Right? There is a necessity of worshiping by the Spirit, probably a capital S, a Spirit in the truth that God gives, which um, is in Jesus Christ. The hope of God's people is not tied to a particular tradition, place, or location, Jesus says. It's tied to Him to the person Jesus Christ. If we are to worship God rightly, we must do it through the Son, who is truth. Right? He's full of grace and truth. John tells us at the beginning of this Gospel. And we must worship God by the Spirit. In effect, what Jesus says in John 4 here is that the exalted Christ is now the place where God is to be acknowledged and honored. Rather than a renewed temple, which there was this expectation 
Uh, we have Ezekiel's prophecy, this temple that's going to be renewed, rather than an actual physical structure that's rebuilt in Jerusalem or some other holy mountain, the place of uh, the eschatological pilgrimage, right? The, um, f- the fulfillment of all things, the end, where we're traveling, where you have to move to be a follower of Yahweh is not Jerusalem or any place else. You move to Jesus Christ. Jesus is the full and definitive manifestation of God's presence. And He is now the center of spiritual life for followers of God. He's the source of life. He is the center for the ingathering of nations. We read yesterday, if you were here in the, the cross conference that we had, Isaiah 11. And at the end, he's talking about, um, uh, not the end, but Isaiah 11, 10. Um, this root uh, from the stump of Jesse, Jesus descended from David, who's son of Jesse. He says, um, he shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire, and the resting place, his resting place shall be glorious. And so, no longer is it the temple to which they must look, this physical structure, but Christ. And so, our preaching, our teaching, should center on the person and work of Christ. Um, any thoughts on that? That's sort of. Uh, some of that finishes out what we said last time. Some of it is a little new, but comments on that about Jesus. Jesus in the Gospels, one of the, the most significant uh, things, Jesus the Gospels and worship, is that Jesus is now the temple. Um, it's one of the things that we're going to talk about. Well, then Jesus and the New Covenant... The temple was central in Israel life, but it was regulated, Israelite life was regulated by the Old Covenant. This um, pact, this agreement, um, arrangement that God had established with uh, His people in Israel regulated how they were to approach Him in the temple. And so if Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Temple... What do you expect to be his relationship with the Old Covenant? What's that? Right. We have temples fulfilled. Christ is the the new temple. Old Covenant is fulfilled. And now we have a new covenant is inaugurated. The new temple comes new covenant. And Christ in the Lord's Supper inaugurates this new covenant. If you look in Luke 22, right? Um, can, would somebody read um, 14 through 23 of Luke 22? Okay, thank you. And so, 
At the Last Supper, Jesus has with His disciples before He goes to be betrayed and crucified. He, um, he establishes what uh, we know to be the Supper, or communion we call it. And when He passes the cup, He says, uh, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant of My blood. And so... Um, the shedding of the blood of Christ, this new covenant is enacted and realized. The old covenant is fulfilled. And the new covenant is inaugurated through the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, when we look at Hebrews, uh, the author to the Hebrews spends a lot of time considering the change in covenant. Um, and so we'll, we'll talk about that, but enough to say that now there is some kind of new regulation for the people of God. Old has come, uh, the old has passed away, the new has come. Um, Jesus' death not only serves as a fulfillment of the temple sacrifice and the plan and purpose of God, but also reestablishes the underlying covenant with Israel on a new basis. A new or renewed covenant was effected by His shed blood, fulfilling the typology we see in the Old Covenant. Isaiah even, uh, not Isaiah, Jeremiah, sorry, prophesies about the new covenant that's coming. One where uh, says, in this covenant all will know me. My laws will be written on their hearts. And so in this new covenant, God's people are restored to Him as a fulfillment of the promise that God makes to Abraham. Now, Gentiles, not one or two here and there, but by the truckloads, as it were, are brought into the fold through the death of Jesus and they experience atonement and are consecrated to God as His people. And so, Jesus establishes Himself as the new temple. And this new covenant is now what regulates the life of the people of God. And we see additionally in <coughs> Acts now, um, there is also a significant element, or significant discussion of the temple in Acts. Temple and God's people in Acts. Early on in Acts, we learn that God is drawing people from all over the world to Himself. Acts portrays uh, this. And again, that idea of drawing to Himself has to do with this temple, right? In the Old Testament, there was a, a, a moving, coming to Jerusalem. A um, sort of a come and see and now it's Christianity is still a um, come and see what we're like, but it's no longer a central place. 
But in Acts, the temple is portrayed as a place of revelation. Look in Acts 2. 2.46, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. In 3.1, it's also seen as a place of prayer. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at that hour, at the hour of prayer. The ninth hour. Third, the early Christians preached Jesus Christ and crucified as this happened. The temple became for them the place where they experienced opposition and arrest in Acts 4.3. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day for it was already evening as they were at the temple. And so, as the Christ-centered theology of the of this new covenant that's enacted uh, works itself out in the lives of the New Testament believers, it's more and more apparent Christ is now the new meeting point between heaven and earth. The temple of Jerusalem played its predicted role as the venue of this fulfillment that was promised, and then it gave way to the new salvation which is not confined to a particular location. we can say of Acts as a whole is that it points to the proclamation of the heavenly rule of Christ with all its implications as the means chosen by God to draw people into relationship with Himself through redemption in Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. God's great act of redemption in Christ is now the basis of a call to enter into and enjoy the blessings of the new covenant. On the work of Christ, this new covenant stands and rests. And worship in the New Testament now, we see is, in New Testament terms, it is the means of responding with one's whole life and being to the divine kingship of Christ. When we talk about worship the New Testament, we are coming with all that we are, with all that we have to submit ourselves to God's rule. Jesus Christ is King. And He invites us to come and enjoy His presence. He invites us to to turn from self and idolatry and to give ourselves fully to the one true living God. We don't have to change who we are necessarily culturally. Some cultural things need to go, but we don't have to become Jews essentially to be right with God. We're right with God through faith in Jesus Christ because of His work. She was simply, pretty much saying just how amazing it is, how astounding it is that God cares for us. 
Yeah. No, 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 no. It's great. Yeah, God, God cares for us. And He invites us into fellowship with Him. It really is amazing. And so what we see here being played out in the New Testament is that, that God has, has established now this new temple, this new covenant, this new meeting place of God. And uh, He did it at a great expense. The life of His Son. And so, when we think of worship, what this drives us toward is realizing how necessary it is that Jesus Christ is at the very center of our worship. He is not a peripheral kind of um, thing. Well, yeah, yeah, he's, a, you know, he's an important part, but he's kind of one thing among many that just... He is now the center of our lives. Jesus is our access to God as the temple, as our king, as our priest. It's amazing that he would do that for us. Yeah. Yeah, if we, if we miss this, then we miss everything else. That, you know, as... This idea of temple, right? Jesus says He is the what? This cornerstone, right? That upon Him, all of the rest of it, you know, relies, stands. And so, um, very important to, to grasp this. And um, <coughs> anything else on that point before we move on? We're moving kind of quickly through some of this, trying to hit... Just the highlights. There's no way we could be exhaustive in all that we talk about. But um, if there's no other thoughts, we'll look at Paul, some of the things that he says today. And we'll look at Paul next week as well. Um, and we'll begin sort of winding down this uh, biblical theology um, of, of worship as we begin moving towards some other things that we want to talk about. So, Paul then. We've very briefly looked at the Gospels. We've considered a few things from Acts. This stress of worship as it relates to Jesus as the new temple. The people of, you know, Christians as the new people of God. Paul then. Here's a quote. Christianity is a total consecration involving belonging, obedience, brotherly love, In short, total service and adoration of the living and true God. What we need to do here, then, is discover the substructure of worship theology in Paul's writings. How does Paul view worship? And I want to begin by looking at something that he says in 1 Thessalonians. 
1 Thessalonians 1, 9 through 11. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. And this idea of turning from idols, Paul uses, signifies a total reorientation of life. It involves abandoning idolatry for the worship of the living God. What then... If you read just these texts here, what's the motivation for this reorientation? Why do these people turn? Why? Because of the true living God. Express how. Um, or... The true living God expressed to them how? Waiting for Jesus. The preaching about Jesus as God's Son, raised from the dead, soon returning from heaven, who even now is rescuing believers from the coming judgment. It's this great motive that they have to forsake their worship of of idols, of filling themselves, seeking to gratify their desires through this world and being pleased in God. And according to Paul, in the rest of 1 Thessalonians, serving God means a number of things. In uh, chapter 4, verse... Three, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And in 5.18, we are to give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. That what it means to serve God is to do His will. And so to live as to please Him in all things. Chapter 4, verse 1. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing that you do so more and more. In other words, Paul is saying that Christianity... What is it that distinguishes Christianity in Paul's mind from the other cults in Thessalonica? Is it rituals and secret practices? Pleasing God. It's a lifestyle. It is the lifestyle of its adherents that is separate from, that separate the Christians from the others. It is 
who they're in Christ, that they live for God rather than for themselves. It's not these rituals, secret practices, um, kind of these official ways of doing things, but Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's not, you're not a, trying to appease an angry God, right, in the way that you live, and to divert his wrath away from you based on your performance or your sacrifice or whatever. Rather, you are you're living in light of the gospel, which says that you can't do that, that Christ has done it for you, and you live in step with the gospel, that you live as servants of a king who, uh, who we are loved by this king. So we're seeking to live in such a way that pleases God in that it is in step with what he has commanded and he does take pleasure in our obedience. Because why? Why is it? How can God take pleasure in your obedience? Conforming to the image of the Son? Yeah? Hmm. Hmm. Give him all the glory. And it... It's what? Yeah, what, what is that? God is a jealous God. He's jealous, right, of His people that we not stray and go after other gods. Right? I, jealousy and envy, I, there's a, a difference between the two. Envy, we might say, is desiring what somebody else has. Right? Jealousy, we can say, is a when you know a right the kind of jealousy that God has that we at least hypothetically can't have is the jealousy that a husband has over his wife, right? Protective. That this is like I'm jealous over Jesse. I'm not. Now there's the insecure kind of jealousy that you see a lot in like teenagers and things like that when they have boyfriends and girlfriends. And, hey, I saw you talking to somebody. It's not that, but there is something there of saying this protecting, keeping what's yours, right? And God, in similar fashion, is jealous over His people, over us. He has bought us at the price of His Son, and so He is desirous that we would entrust ourselves to Him. Other thoughts? Thing we're going to close with. Um, <clears throat> okay. Well, so maybe a couple minutes early, but to get into the next point, I think would we in no way could do it. We're hardly doing much of this justice, I, I feel. But um, to get into the, the next point, I think would take too long. So I'll go ahead and pray.